I because I feel like the feature could be called the reading list where you invite a guest librarian. Oh, I love that. Oh, you see, that's why you earn the big bucks, mate. That is absolutely <laughs> perfect. They were going to call the Mash Report Fuck Shop before I came on board. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, guys, this is a terrible Oh, name. Captain, my captain. Oh, Captain, my captain. Uh, welcome to Oh Captain, My Captain. Uh, this is, I don't know if this is a spin-off yet. Uh, I don't know if it's a feature. It could end up, this, Ricky, in the future, this could end up being its own thing. <laughs> okay. Uh, so this could spin off from Oh Captain, My Captain itself and have its own life. Because I... I like it as a, as an idea. I've had an idea. What could be a really good thing to do? And I've got two titles for this. So we have Here to we decide. Yeah. Uh, the Michelle Pfeiffer podcast. The Michelle Pfeiffer is back again. I had this idea for to get comedian friends of mine who are sort of basically comedian and comedy dweebs to come in and suggest specials on Netflix and all, and to to suggest those sorts of things to you as the sort of things that maybe comedians, when they're starting out, could benefit from listening to. That's quite a good idea, isn't it? That's a great idea. Yeah, I've been looking for more comedians to listen to and stuff as well. Yeah, and so, um, but it won't just be the easy ones or the straightforward ones. Yeah. It'll be, sometimes we'll, we might take a deep dive into an Edinburgh show from a certain time or um, like I'm a big fan of some comedy that was made in like the 1950s and 60s. And so if we think that's useful or if the person we think that we're in, we're talking to finds it useful, then that stuff will come up as well. And what hopefully it'll be like, and this is where the name comes in. (laughs) I'm torn between calling it the reading list. Okay. Or, and I think I thought of this one about 10 minutes ago, and I, I think this is the one that might stick, The Librarian. Ah, uh, that's nice. That's really simple. Because I'm like the inspirational teacher. <laughs> <laughs> this is the theme, the constant theme. And, uh, and so The Librarian, so you're like, ah, oh, thanks, Teach, for telling me all this stuff. <laughs> but... Oh no, I really want to know more. I want to know where to find this stuff. And and I'd be like, do you know what you need? I can help you on my own. You want to go to the librarian. <laughs> I feel like that's when the jingle would start. Exactly. Yeah. No, I'm not, and I'm not saying we have to find another stranger and pay them a five pounds extra to to be to do a librarian jingle. I want to do another spin-off. Uh, where we do uh, a podcast of we just watch Ricky <laughs> listening to Ross Noble for the first time and listening to Bamford and listening to Daniel Kitson for the, I just want to watch like you, you know those uh, uh, those reaction videos that they have of two girls one cup and all those <laughs> other videos I want to do reaction videos of Ricky watching all this stuff going holy shit holy shit this is incredible um but, uh, but that was, so I just thought, you know, we open the library or we have the guest librarian um, and I've got a guest librarian uh, for today. So I've already booked one in and I'm very excited uh, that it is Nish Kumar. 
Oh, yay. That's a great librarian. It's a great first librarian, right? It is. It's a fantastic librarian. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, so I just thought we get, uh, we get in the guest librarian uh, and we talk to the guest librarian. Now, oh, can I hear the guest librarian? Oh, the guest librarian is coming in. I think the guest librarian is here. What an organic entrance. Hi, Nish Kumar. Hi guys, sorry, I don't think I re- realised I was going to be coming in in the middle of the recording <laughs> <laughs> uh, Nish, what do you think? The reading list or the librarian? Uh, I actually I kind of like both I believe that there's no reason you couldn't use uh, both features I feel like, because I, I feel like the feature could be called the reading list Where you invite a guest librarian to come in and add to the reading list. Oh, I love that. Hey, that's why you earn the big bucks, mate. That is absolutely perfect. <laughs> they were going to call the MASH report fuck shop before I came on board. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, guys, this is a terrible name. Is that why we had to uh we had to do that ballot? Because I I I voted for I voted for fuck shop. I know, Oliver. You were you you were the only one that vo- as soon as we counted the votes, we were like, well, everyone's voted for the mash report, <laughs> apart from one vote for fuck shop, and everyone was like, Oliver, Oliver. There's no point in a secret ballot when you sign your crimes, Oliver. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, do you know what? I think this is I think this is absolutely right. Uh, welcome to the reading list with our first guest librarian, Mr. Nish Kumar. Uh, how are you, Nish? I'm very good. How are you both? I'm all right. Do you find the fact that that we selected you for this based on the fact that you are a comedy nerd? Do you find that um, a compliment or an insult? (laughs) I feel like like the best things in life. It is a a compliment wrapped in an insult (laughs) like that's I feel it is the Velvet glove, in, it's the velvet fist inside the iron glove. <laughs> I invert that aphorism. Um, yeah, no, I uh, listen, I've always considered myself to be Britain's most nerdy and available comedian. <laughs> <laughs> That's, it's the combination of those two things. It's a real sweet spot between those two things that I've uh, I pride myself on. And also now, not just, you know, uh, available, also a librarian. So that's quite well, handy. That's perfect. That's absolutely perfect. Yeah. Ricky, would you describe yourself as a comedy nerd? Yeah. See, I would say to normies, I'm a comedy nerd. But sometimes when I'm with comedians and they name names that existed 30 years before I was born, I'm like, Christ, I need to do some catching up. <laughs> How many of your 22 gigs... How, when did you start the process of doing the 22 gigs? Because obviously, I guess it's a weird time to start doing comedy. Right? Yeah, yeah. So it's weird. I started first in summer of 2019. So I started yeah. doing open mics in London. And then I slowed down a bit. And then honestly, it really kicked off after lockdown. Because yeah. then when like the six people per table thing started happening and not that many comedians yeah. were available and I met the great Mark Olver. Hello. When, <laughs> when gigs were happening in Bristol, I just started doing a bunch more. So I've had like a really varied amount of gigs, but the majority have been sure. out, outdoors pretty much. Wow. That I mean, that is very much really starting at the deep end. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it gets even better than that. I don't think you did. Did you do the Lakota when 
Steve Lount from the Comedy Box was running gigs at the Lakota in Bristol. Um, Wang did it. Um, Gamble came down. Where, uh, was it an outdoor job? And it was an outdoor gig. And um, one of Ricky's first gigs. Oh, my God, yeah. What number would this have been, Ricky? So that was number 13. Number 13, Russell Howard is on. He's doing... Right. I, yes, I remember this, yeah. He's doing two shows in one night. Oh, wow. And I say to Ricky... Come down and watch Russell if you want. Come and meet Russ, chat in the green room. And he comes down and Russell's like, oh, but we can find five minutes for Ricky in the second gig, right? Right. And so, so his 30th gig was like 250 people uh, at um, this massive gig with Russell Howard. And he, uh, and he stormed it as well. So. That's great. Oh, it, was such, it was such a terrifying experience. It was so much fun as well. So much fun. It was like, oh, meeting Russell and actually meeting you for the first time as well, Mark. And then you guys... Yeah, because that's right. We'd met, on, we'd met online, but we hadn't met in person. And then straight out into the deep end. <laughs> yeah. Stephen Wright always says that the process of being a comedian, it's like it almost happens backwards. Like you start doing the most difficult possible gigs. He, he, I remember him saying in an interview, he's like, now, obviously, if I go and do a gig, I'm doing it to like in like to... 2000 people in an amazing theater that was designed for performance. They're all facing the right way. There are structures and things in place for them to get drinks or go to the toilet if they want. They've come to see me. And he was like, it's the easiest possible way to do comedy. Whereas the entire comedian career is backwards. Whereas six people in a room that holds 500, (laughs) some of whom didn't even know there was gonna be comedy, (laughs) certainly have never heard of you. It's the hardest thing. And I would say you've gone, taken that one step further and added <laughs> the alfresco element. <laughs> it's, do you know what? It's one of the things that we've talked about on the podcast already is that I think, was it Robin Morgan who said this? It was like, holy shit, your first gigs have been the gigs that the majority of comedians absolutely hate as it gets as it gets further on into your career. Yeah. Those festivally outdoorsy type gigs. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, I said this last time, no one told me that. No one told yeah, me yeah, yeah. it was meant to be harder. They were just like, oh, Ricky, there's a gig happening. I'm like, yeah, let's <laughs> do it. I don't care if it's at a petting zoo or anything like that. Yeah, let's yeah, go. yeah. Yeah, just like the audience is like five cats and a farmer. <laughs> like, it's like, yeah, it's, it is, you are, you've gone straight in at the deepest bit of the deep end. <laughs> <laughs> it's all, you're going to find... Indoor gigs, an absolute piece of piss. Oh, I mean, when Ricky gets a roof on his head, he will... Fucking hell. Blow that roof unbelievable. Off. Just, <laughs> that's all I need, a roof and central heating. <laughs> so, Ricky, you said that um, when you're with uh, normals, when you're with muggles, that, yeah. you, uh, that you feel like you're a comedy nerd because you talk about the people that you like, but then when you're with certain comics and whether it's circuit comics or old men, you're like, <laughs> oh, holy fuck, I don't know as much as I thought I did. Yeah, 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 definitely, yeah. I feel like my knowledge is really, is good for like <clears throat> what's happening right now in big American comedy, but I think it ends pretty much at the early 2000s, and then I know a bit more about the mid-90s. I mean, first of all, that's the age difference straight away. That the first comedy, the first stand-up comedy I got into was on cassettes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I got a, a free cassette with, uh, I think it was GQ magazine, and there was um, a Bill Bailey routine, a Jack D routine, a Bill Hicks routine. I got Bill Hicks routine in 1990. Oof. 
three yeah. on this cassette. It was the bit about um, if men could suck their own cocks. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. All the yeah. women... All the women in this theater would be sat here alone <laughs> watching an empty stage. Um, so that was listening. Like for me, it was always yeah. albums and cassettes. What was your first stuff that you loved listening to? The first, I think the first piece of stand up that I ever remember being able, like I, I feel like I always knew what stand up comedy was, but I think certainly the first conscious step I had of like I'm watching something that's a stand-up comedian doing stand-up was watching Chris Rock the first one I saw was bigger and blacker and I remember seeing he had a routine he has a routine in that show about how um there's no point in being homophobic or anything because whoever you hate will end up in your family and if you hate gay people you will have a gay uncle or a gay son and there was a whole bit in it where he then says the thing about your uncles is that they prepare you for life um, because you have, uh, you know, a gay uncle, you have a stealing uncle who steals <laughs> stuff. And then he had this and then he would get, and you have a molester uncle. Everybody has an uncle who your mum is like, don't wear Don't leave your kids with Uncle Johnny. <laughs> and then there's this bit where he says and then you get molested and your mum gets angry with you. And he does this act out of your mum yelling at you going i told you what this was what would happen if you hung around with fucking johnny now walk it off <laughs> and i remember like it's it was so jarring seeing somebody just speak about that sort of that contentious subject matter um and then my friend had family in america and so he would often come back with bits of, this was you know the kind of pre-internet era or at least the era of dog shit internet when information was not traveling at the speed of light. But my friend came back from America with this book called Rock This, which I now recognize to be an unbelievable cash-in. But it was a sort of <laughs> memoir in the loosest sense of the word, but it was actually transcriptions effectively of Chris Rock's stand-up routines. And that was like the first, because I, you know, if you watched, you'd watch Bigger and Blacker if it was on Channel 4, but there was it wasn't the same way of, buying stuff it wasn't as easily available or accessible and so like one of the first long form pieces of stand-up comedy I ever inter interacted with was effectively Chris Rock's cash-in memoir that was really him like transcriptions of his stand-up routines you know like and somehow he gets the bit about toss salad in and you're like I don't know how you've managed to work that into an autobiography <laughs> but it was incredible. I was a big Bill Hicks fan. And then Bill Hicks led me into, because of this cassette, actually. Like, yeah. I, I listened to this cassette and then I was like, oh, shit. So I, and again, before the days of the internet, this was literally 1993. I had no idea how I found it, but I then went down Lenny Bruce roots yeah. and Mort Sal roots and, and then people like Dick Gregory and uh, George Carlin's Seven Dirty Words. And, and so I started getting into those and actually it wasn't until i was so obsessed with especially uh relentless uh yeah. the chris uh, the bill hicks album it wasn't until uh bring the pain yeah. bring the pain for me felt like the first big current amazing stand-up comedian like i don't yeah. even really listen to much uh chappelle because mm. for me, it's like, well, 
bring the pain in it like bring the pain mm. did it all for me for me that those are the yeah that was chris rock is a big was was the like first big stand-up that i was you know a fan of and then when i what 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 happened for me was when i went to like I would get bits of stand-up albums. You download them off like LimeWire in the kind of again, this the sort of wild west of the early internet. And you'd get like bits of stand-up routines and bits of people's albums. And then when I went to university, they had this like local area network in within our like college accommodation. And there was a sort of internal lime wire. I don't no one was policing it. No, it's it it that phase where you know, the students understood the internet better than the administrative stuff. So they set up this thing that was in theory designed for like students to like share academic resources, but it was just a completely open uh, file sharing system that existed within our university accommodation. So all that happened was people used the high speed internet that we had because which we you didn't really have at home. It was really only in like university buildings that you had access to. People used that to basically download and then pirate everything <laughs> like so i suddenly had access to everything and so suddenly i went from being someone who knew like comedy through fragments to suddenly being able to organize those fragments into a whole so then from there i was able to watch um bring the pain in its entirety bigger and blacker in its entirety um, and then uh, my favourite one, which I would actually say is the first one on the reading list for me, would be Never Scared, which is the special that he did uh, after um, that's very much like in reflection of the Iraq war. Um, I think it came out in 2004, um, but I can confirm that quite quickly for you now. But it... Um, yeah, Never Scared was 2004. Yeah, so Chris Rock special Never Scared that came out in 2004 was the is the one that I would say for me absolutely goes on that uh, goes on the reading list. I, I think it's um, it's I, I think it's just a perfect piece. This stuff in uh, Bigger and Blacker that I think maybe hasn't dated as well now. Um, and Bring the Pain in a lot of ways is a really incredible document of where he was at that time but I think the stuff in Never Scared that I think is I think it's just absolutely perfect from beginning to end I think it's um really what's the uh what's the album where uh, um a lot of Chris Rock albums and a lot of comedy albums actually for me are a little bit like James Bond films where I can't remember which film was the bit where the car yeah the, 60 somersault i know it was one of them yeah or the one with the parachute and chris rock albums and lots of comedy albums do merge into one a little bit there's that great brit bit about what it's like to be a rich black man and he's like i live on a street with dentists and doctors the black people that live on a street it's like it's him mary <laughs> j blige jay-z <laughs> And they live with dentists and doctors. Yeah, and he's like, my neighbour's a dentist and he's not even the best dentist. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's on, that's on uh, Never Scared. The, the, yeah. the, the, things that, the things that people would probably know from Never Scared would be the opening, which is, I've got to keep my daughter off the pole. Um, that's the <laughs> like opening line of that, which he then back-referenced recently in, uh, in Tambourine, in his most recent special. 
because he was doing material about his girls going to some fancy high school, private school. And he's, you know, he does back reference that he kept her off the pole. Um, and um, it has a fantastic routine about rap music. Um, and um, and again, in terms of if you want to, the technical skills that Chris Rock deploys, a lot of which have really actually cribbed from his grandfather's preaching style, um, are really in full force in the rap music routine because it has two, there's two elements to it. One is that he um, is, he, and you, the thing is, one of the rhetorical skills he employs is he will take an idea, a quite often quite complicated idea, and distill it into a key phrase. And he will then repeat the phrase mm. and then go into it. So with that, the reason that I think that that's such a good example is because there's two key phases to that routine. And the first one is love rap music, tired of defending it. And the second one is the government hates rap. And he will structure it almost like a song that has a chorus. So it would be uh, love rap music tired of defending it then there'll be an example of it love rap music tired of defending it so at every point you take what is quite a sort of nuanced example like what quite a nuanced idea and he will be the idea never leaves the audience's head he keeps reminding you of what the key central idea behind this entire routine is and then it allows him to go off and talk about the Lil John song to the window to the wall to the sweat drip from my balls he, it allows him to talk about because uh, the government hates rap the premise is that you know the government never investigates rap killings um and you know if the uh if Billy Joel was killed the government would have Bruce Springsteen and David Bowie's house surrounded you know like there's you know if you want to kill somebody and get away with it put a demo tape in their pocket like it's <laughs> it, it, but, so, but then he will keep returning to um that idea but there's also there's bits in that show that I that have like that I used to talk about you know there's a whole routine about how the start the ramp up to the Iraq war and how um you know how patriotism and anti-immigration sentiment like it's like a quick walk down from patriotism to anti-immigration sentiment to outright outright racism and he, he says this thing where he's like that train's never late and whenever I feel like I'm talking about how you know faux patriotism is basically just a cover for racism and is always only ever two steps away from becoming racism I always feel like I reach for that train is never late. And also, if you want to, this this actually isn't from this one. This is from Bigger and Blacker. But if you want to illustrate what uh, the the quickest distillation of the idea of white privilege can be distilled by Chris Rock and Bigger and Blacker saying, if you want to know how great it is to be white, none of all the white people here, none of you would trade places with me now, and I'm rich. Yeah. <laughs> and that yeah. uh, there isn't a better way to illustrate what is meant by the slightly nebulous and often misused phrase white privilege than that routine for Chris Rock. Chris, there's a, he, he then says there's a white one legged busboy in here that wouldn't trade places with me and is thinking, I'm just going to ride this white thing out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like there just isn't there isn't a better way of uh, distilling that idea, which is a quite complicated, nuanced intellectual conceit than his stand-up. That's at its best, that is what stand-up comedy is capable of, uh, I would say. 
in your library, uh, it's a beautiful library, by the yes. way. I love uh, Nick's <laughs> library. Um, have you got so because I used to be a careers advisor, and so I know a lot about um, the Dewey Decimal System and also sure. the careers uh, library classification system, the yeah. CLCI. Um, in your corner of the library that you've put Chris Rock, um, is he in a black corner with Chappelle, but also uh, Richard Pryor, who we'll get onto in a minute? Uh, Dick Gregory and also a special locked area where there's loads of Bill Cosby albums. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, this is also like it's. It, 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 listen, it probably is good. We should. We should. We may as well address. Uh, and the problem is when you're talking about particularly the history of stand-up comedy and the history of men doing stand-up comedy. When you talk about the history of men doing anything, you, know, <laughs> we, you get into. You talk about the. You talk about the fucking charity sector. And you can't, you, there is, there are elephants in the room, but listen, in the world of stand up men doing stand up comedy, there are, you know, there is this, there are several elephants in the room and I'm sure we'll touch on all of them at some point in this conversation, because one of the other, one of the, the first stand up comedy album I ever bought when I was 18 years old was the nightclub years collection of Woody Allen stand up. So, uh, and you know, it's difficult to say we didn't know because we kind of did, but we just didn't care. And something about, it's the interesting thing about Woody Allen is that a lot of the allegations that are swirling around were made in the very early nineties. But what seems to have brought it home for a lot of people is Dylan Farrow's letter on the subject. And that's, mm. so there are huge, you know, stand-up comedy is like the Olympics. Like there are gold medals that are awarded that have to, that should be taken back. Really. <laughs> you know, there are gold medals awarded that need to come with a big whopping asterisk around them. Absolutely. And because one of the, uh, I, I would say, so I like that album. I like the Nightclub Years album. Yeah. I do, however, think it's ever so slightly overrated. And the reason I think it's ever so slightly overrated is that whenever anyone goes to listen to that album, I think they go straight to Moose. And yeah. kidnapped. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I, there are there's a 10 minute section on that album where there are two routines that Woody Allen does, and they are old as well. I mean, yeah, they yeah. might even be like it could be 50s or early 1960s. Yeah, yeah. Um, and those two routines, uh Moose and Kidnapped, and whatever you think of uh whatever you think of Woody Allen, and actually I don't know enough about Bill Cosby's output to go do you know what there are priceless bits of bill cosby stand up but moose and kidnapped are brilliantly formed pieces of stand up i i think yeah. there is there is close as you can get to perfect and you have to acknowledge that even while Ooh. talking about the fact that we don't want so don't listen to the whole album don't give him the yeah. credit of listening to the whole album <laughs> <laughs> do moose and kidnapped. Yeah, I know it's so strange because it's like what Nish said about the Bill Cosby thing is for my generation, Bill Cosby was definitely the Cosby show. Like I'm old enough to have watched Cosby show reruns when I was a kid and stuff like that. So when all the allegations came out, everyone's like perception of him changed. But I've never seen anything of his stand-up wise. Like uh, all I've ever heard is how influential he was to other influential comedians. And I've heard other comedians talk so highly of his stand-up and stuff. Um, so it's so strange 
that I've never even interacted with it whatsoever. Like the closest I've gotten to watching any stand-up even about him was actually the Hannibal Hannibal Barris bit where he actually outed Cosby. And like you say, he acted like everyone knew this was happening the whole time, but they just didn't care. But and, and I mean also one of the other the one of the other things that I would absolutely include um in my library is the film comedian uh that Jerry Seinfeld made. Oh yeah. Um, I, I would absolutely do that because and the thing that everyone always forgets, including me, I probably watch that film once a year, I'd say. And the thing that you always forget is the culmination of Jerry Seinfeld's strand of that plot line, like uh, to remind himself of why we're all comedians. He goes to watch Bill Cosby and then he meets Bill Cosby in the dressing room afterwards. And, you know, it's very we're in a moment where we're still trying to work out what how we handle people who advanced an art form but did a huge amount of damage uh you know whether it's sexual abuse rape like it's these are people who did a huge amount of damage and it's um it's a very weird thing but that the jerry seinfeld comedian film feels very strange because of that but it is a fascinating document aside from the cosby stuff because it um it follows jerry seinfeld coming back after being the star of the sitcom and after having um, done an HBO special, which burned all of his previous material and effectively starting from scratch and going back to doing semi open mic gigs, but obviously still being Jerry Seinfeld and carrying the, what, the, the expectation of that. And then it also follows Orny Adams, who is a newer comedian at the time on his path to doing his first appearance on Letterman. And it's, it's just a very interesting document about how stand up works and you know, the, what it's like to start a career in it and it is a very fascinating thing but so in terms of where where I went from Chris Rock in terms of my own journey with stand-up when I was at university I was I loved Chris Rock and I was doing that kind of stuff and then a friend of mine was like you if you like stand-up comedy you must watch Richard Pryor and I knew Richard Pryor very loosely from just sort of being a stand-up comedian and also from being in Superman 3 you know like (laughs) and um see no evil hear no evil he's in all these movies that i had seen when i was a kid and i was sort of aware that he was like you know he was the godfather of stand-up um and you know because when you start being interested in comedy particularly in american comedy there's like lenny bruce george carlin and richard pryor are the sort of three people that helped invent what we call modern comedy i think in a lot of ways but then so then i got i was given a DVD of Live in Concert and Live in Concert is, you know, is the kind of high watermark of Richard Pryor's career. But he, I also at the same time got Live in Smoking, which is effectively like handy cam footage of him having a difficult gig in as he went from being Richard Pryor, the, you know, very well-mannered, clean-shaven, nice young man who was effectively doing a Bill Cosby tribute act as he transitioned out of that into the comedian who would, you know, the sort of the person who basically broke apart and rebuilt stand-up comedy in his own image, that live and smoking catches him on the turn. And it's fascinating because it's not going well at points and people don't know what to do with it because they've been confronted with somebody talking about growing up in a brothel that was run by his grandmother Mm -hmm. 
and where one of the prostitutes was his mother. And he, he, they don't know what to do. And he's doing observational comedy about growing up in a brothel. And it's fascinating and it's uncomfortable and it's brilliant. And it's amazing because it, it's the sort of thing that doesn't really exist for a lot of standout comedians. Because you, you normally what you see is them being finished products. Live and Smoking catches Pryor on his way to in in a phase of creative development and it's kind of it's kind of incredible that it exists but also they're like the third bit of the prior library is the albums and what on our like illegal file sharing service i got there's the entire warner album collection and the albums are absolutely extraordinary that's just the album version of live in concert and there's an album version of sunset strip but there are four or five albums before that that uh, don't exist as films and just exist as comedy albums. And they are, you know, I mean, this is, you know, it's, it's the best. It's the absolute best. Do you know much about Richard Pryor, Ricky? Yeah, I've, uh, I've listened to, uh, is it Live at the Sunset Strip? Yeah. Yeah, I've listened to that one. I listened to that right before I did Lakota for the second time because <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, this is the next natural progression. But it was um, it was like, I remember listening to it and being like, wow, all the comedians that I grew up listening to, this is what they're trying to be. Like yeah. they were trying to be Richard Pryor, like Chris Rock, Martin Lawrence, Dave Chappelle yeah. even a bit. Like, and I realized like, wow, going back to where it all started, where it all started from, made me think that like Chris Rock in a way was probably the first like rock star comedian. Like he was probably the first like, like global superstar, even in like, I guess he was the first to like combine the hip hop culture with the comedy culture, which are like two quite intertwined things today. Although I don't know if you're thinking exactly what I'm thinking, but the one that we often forget on this run how successful he was as a superstar was Eddie Murphy. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. possible to forget about Eddie yeah. Murphy. It is because he's, I mean, he, he he stopped doing stand-up when he was like in his mid-twenties. You know, he hasn't, he stopped doing stand-up meaningfully. Yeah. Um, if, you're talking, uh, if you're talking Eddie Murphy, you do have to go back probably, I would say five years before that, maybe a bit longer, and go Steve Martin. Because yeah. we think of Eddie Murphy as being... A film star, oh, but you know he was a rock star arena comedian. Yeah. And you go, but you know that uh, Steve Martin did that in the late 70s. And I don't know if you've listened to any Steve Martin, Ricky, but but some of those albums, is it the Wild, Wild and Crazy Guy Wild album? Wild and Crazy Guy, yeah. Sounds like a, sounds yeah. like a, Red, a Led Zeppelin gig where the yeah. audience go absolutely mental like ridiculous for it it's 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 the one of the most amazing things to listen to because you go holy shit i could be listening to like the beatles it just yeah. goes insane and i think also i think in terms of books for the library the two books that would be pretty essential would be born standing up which is steve martin's memoir exclusively of being a stand-up it pretty much ends around the time there's there's stuff about how they wrote the jerk and that's pretty much when it ends but born standing up um, is uh, is incredible. And Stuart Lee's book, How I Escaped My Certain Fate, which is a combination as a, a memoir and then a transcription of three of his stand-up shows uh, that are both that are pretty much the best 
books about being a stand-up I've ever read. Born standing up, I find amazing because yeah. uh, this is a guy who started doing comedy in like theme parks in California and was a banjo player and yeah. a a juggler and did balloon animals and then became the guy that you see in uh, Parenthood and you know yeah. the jerk and all that. But in the middle of that. He talks about and he talks in Bond standing up, and you read it and you go, Holy shit, that's literally my experience. <laughs> like yeah. the bit where he started becoming a stand up comedian, you go, Oh, holy shit, that's that's the equivalent of doing Jeff Whiting gigs. That's the equivalent yeah, of yeah, yeah. driving around the M4, the M5, doing all of these gigs. So, so Ab, I would 100% put mm. uh, put Steve Martin yeah. and that album. Those, on, those, on that those two. That book, when I read that book around the time I was starting to do stand up, and it is, it is, it is pretty incredible. Um, have you got um, a British section to your library, Nish? Are we, are we staying? Uh, have you got this corner of the library? Are we going to go? Uh, no, I think. Listen, I think for sure you've got to have, uh, you've got to, you've got to celebrate the Brits. Um, I mean, I think that um, the three Stuart Lee shows that are form the core of the book are all worth seeing. I mean, I think if I had to pick one of the three, you'd probably pick 90s comedian, possibly. Mm -hmm. But also the thing that makes those shows interesting is that they're filmed in uh, the Chapter Arts Centre in Cardiff and then the Glasgow and Edinburgh stands. So it's stand-up comedian, 90s comedian and 41st best stand-up. Um, and so it, it's film footage of stand up in a club in a, in comedy clubs um chapter arts is an, is an all-purpose art center but it still feels it still has that kind of intimacy but i mean the glasgow and edinburgh stands are where those two shows are filmed and you know it's stand up where you can see the sweat on his face you know like you, you, you really feel the kind of the intensity of being in that room you know mm. is um is what and um so i would and uh you know this i mean there's routines in there this this little phrases one of the things about loving recordings of stand-up because obviously it's a live art form it's all about the live experience but one of the things about having these records of it and listening to things over and over again is that you realize there are certain phrases that just stick in your mind and i mean if you watch 90s comedian obviously there are things there are outs there are phrases in that show that will stand out but for me the thing that i will always remember is the cat's feet towel in 90s comedian and there are elements of that that the, the, that phrase the cat cat's feet towel is like is one of my favorite things in comedy <laughs> like there's you know there's it's it's quite it's quite extraordinary and if we may stay within the same family for a moment please uh, i would also <laughs> say uh bridget christie's netflix special um is is absolutely phenomenal and oh it's that's a, interesting it's... that uh that that's your view of what family is because my view of let's stay in the same family would be richard herring's christ on a bike which <laughs> yeah, i think yeah, 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 yeah. is an amazing yeah it's show. a great show christ on a bike's a great show um but yeah i but uh, uh, Bridget's uh, Bridget specifically, I would say, has for been, her. Yeah, it, it, those three shows um, that she did in Edinburgh were were big old influences on me, particularly um, big for her, particularly. But I um, I am quite a silly, garrulous man <laughs> who tries to do comedy about very serious subjects, 
And one of the things that helped me reconcile the idea that I want to talk about serious subjects and still be very uh, silly and garrulous was seeing Bridget at the stand because Bridget is a very silly, garrulous person who likes to talk about the most serious subjects. You know, she'll, she's, she's going to do 20 minutes on FGM and it's going to be very funny, but it's going to be, it, it's full on subject matter. And I think I always thought that in order to do that, you had to be quite austere. Um, but seeing Bridget be a goofball and somehow not undermining the seriousness of what she was talking about was always like, that's something that I, I feel like, you know, and also because this was in, you know, I'd been doing stand up for quite a few years when I saw it. it. It really reminded me that you never really stop learning in comedy uh, in or in life. There are broader lessons to be drawn. But certainly in stand up comedy, watching Bridget made me remember that, like, you, you, you do you keep moving and you keep evolving um, and you keep learning stuff. So, yeah, I would definitely say those two. Uh, for me personally, one of the key things I would say in British comedy is Ross Noble. Um and there are any number of stand-up DVDs available of his um, that, uh, but he was one of the first, he was the first person I ever saw do stand-up in a theatre. Um, and I, it was because, you know, we were big comedy fans and I was watching Have I Got News For You? And, you know, one of the three programmes that would showcase comedians in the uh, very early 2000s and the late 90s. And Ross Noble sort of appeared seemingly out of nowhere um, in a world of very, like, you know, very well-dressed, sharp-suited adults, a kind of slouching, long-haired, uh, science fiction-obsessed nutcase from Newcastle would just sort of appear. And, 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 I, and I see, because, like, I'm not the type of comedian that Ross Noble is, but the biggest thing that I see is sometimes occasionally you'll see I'll see on like Twitter a clip of me on a panel show and I'll see myself be seated with my arm behind mm. the chair and that that I totally have got that from Ross Noble I totally have got that from <laughs> Ross Noble because he used to sit and just lean in the chair and look at who I was hosting and then just say something fucking insane but anyway I that we loved him so much that me and my friends from school went to see um Unreal Time which I think is available on DVD, but we went to see Unreal Time uh, in London. I then saw that show again in Sydney because when I was staying with my uncle and I saw him, uh, and then I saw him twice more in quick succession. I, I, I was absolutely obsessed with it. And also I would put Phil Kay in there as well. Yeah. Um, I would put the Izzards, probably especially unrepeatable yeah. on that list as well. And if you go in there, um, because we are gonna, we're gonna open the door. Because I'm aware that almost everyone we've spoken about um, started comedy, did comedy, died, released stuff, yeah. got their very before Ricky was born. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but we can't move yeah. on. But we can't move on without mentioning Billy Conley and without yeah. mentioning Dave Allen and without mentioning people like Peter Cook. Because I think we in this country think that stand-up comedy was invented in 1979. That, yeah. that 1979 is when uh, the comic strip and the comedy store open in London. And we're like, there was no comedy before that. But you yeah. don't realise that actually Billy Conley, Victoria Woods, um, yeah. Dave Allen, Jasper Carrot, some of these people were doing amazing stuff. Um, Phil Kay just 
Sometimes you will go and see him live and it will be the greatest thing you ever go and see. And then you say to all of your friends, come with me tomorrow. This is amazing. And then you go and then an hour later, your friends go, why did you bring me here? (laughs) Um, But that and those are even better nights. (laughs) When Phil has like left the audience behind completely. Those are even better nights. But Um, yeah, like Billy Connolly's uh, the ITV special. Yeah, the audience of Billy Connolly is brilliant. Yeah, an audience of Billy Connolly where, you know, where he talks about the colostomy bag thing where he ties the end of his trousers to the bottom and shit like all that stuff is and Billy Connolly and Dave Allen when I was growing up with my dad's two favorite comedians and um, they were and when Stuart Lee came to do his program the comedy vehicle the keynote inspiration for it was the old Dave Allen specials the mixture of stand-up and sketch yeah and I was quite lucky I was quite lucky starting because I started in 98. Incidentally, Nish, the year Ricky was born. Hello. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so I got to see, I got to support Ross on a couple of gigs before he became a bit of a superstar. I saw him at the Comedy Box in Bristol where there was a curfew. And so he did his encore standing on a bench outside the venue and then drove off in his car. Like Ricky, like Ross Noble. I, I would... There's probably a thing where Izzard, Izzard made a certain type of comedy and, and Skinner as well. Skinner, Paul Merton, Jack D, Jeremy Hardy. There was a period in maybe yeah. the mid-90s that I think a lot of people that that we are fans of and also are friends with saw and went, oh, I can do that. <laughs> Russell yeah. Howard definitely started doing stand-up because of Lee Evans. Oh, like, yeah. I think that is... Absolutely yeah, yeah. there. Um, and and one person that has to go on the reading list, and good luck finding any of his stuff, because he is a contrary fucker and doesn't release it uh, out into the world as much as uh, everyone would want it to, is Daniel Kitson. So, that um, guy. That piece <laughs> of work. Um, we're going to move deeper into the library, but you, you'd put watching Kitson on your list, right, Nish? Yeah, of course. I mean, I would never say it out loud because he'll somehow find out about it and use it as a way to make fun of me. <laughs> but, so I could never possibly say definitively that I would recommend watching. But if I was in a position where it wouldn't compromise my own emotional safety, <laughs> I would absolutely recommend seeking out, you know, you have to like look behind a like, uh, an old fridge <laughs> or something to find a like wax cylinder of him no i mean it's all it's it's actually the 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 recorded material that's available is surprisingly accessible through his website um and it's um there are albums available on bandcamp that are absolutely 100% um worth seeking out um and um you know like he's it's it's kind of as good as it gets again which i would never say because it would really ruin my life but uh it's it's kind yeah, of yeah i think he's i i think he's the best it's of kind us of as good as it gets i mean and also frustratingly again i can't really say anything about him because i know him too well but if if i what if i didn't know him i would say that acaster's netflix collection oh, is yeah. you know like i can you know again i can't publicly endorse him <laughs> no you I, what do you mean you can't publicly you, endorse him you literally publicly endorsed him by being at that recording 
and yeah. doing that noise yeah. Yeah. throughout the shows. Yeah. Have you have you listened? Have you watched those, Ricky? Oh, the, yeah, the yeah, four yeah. James... yeah, the four ones. Yeah, like loads and loads. Yeah, yeah. what did you uh, shut the up this? Shut up this. What did you think of the audience, Ricky? <laughs> while we're here, how how well how well warmed up did you think the audience sounded? <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there was like one very pervasive laugh in the background, <laughs> yeah. a very like guffaw. It was potentially a mistake for them to see me and Ed Gamble together. Uh, we oh. didn't warn them against doing that, but it's um, listen, it's a toxic instrument. I've yes, unfortunately, by virtue of the volume of my laugh, I've made my feelings about those Acaster specials extremely clear. I um, um so I but, did the warm up um, for them, and it was equal parts the best weekend of stand-up I've ever seen and one of the most stressful things I've ever been involved in. Well, what he was trying to do was incredible. insane because the way, it's just the weird thing about how it's consumed now. People look at it and they go, what a wonderful, complete piece of work. But he recorded four shows in a weekend twice. Really? So he did four hours of stand-up over one weekend, four completely different shows twice. Why twice? <laughs> There's a sort of common convention when you record a stand-up show that you record it twice. Oh, okay. Most most of the film stand-up is a cut together of two different shows. Oh. An, an example of that that's not is Live on, <laughs> Live on the Sunset Strip because <laughs> Infight of Live at the Sunset Strip went so badly. It was a complete disaster. There is footage of it available and you see it crops up in the prior documentaries every so often, but he fucking died on his ass oh, the first wow. night of Live at the Sunset Strip. Yeah, and so what you're seeing is the second, but it, it'll often be, it's often, listen, there is an element of it's a security thing in case one of the gigs goes badly, but more, uh, and certainly like it, this is true of the shows that Acaster did, they were all good. Like I saw... I mean, I think I was at all eight of the recordings, <laughs> but like I was at a lot of them. But it, um, they certainly, it's more to do with like camera positions. If you get four cameras in, you can have camera positions in one place and then you get different coverage. And so then when it cuts together, it becomes, it, it allows you to get a more seamless, uh, it, it, it allows for a more immersive end product if you can reposition the cameras um, and you, it gives you two angles on the same routine. And, but yeah, so I mean, Yes, I, I, you know, it's one of those things where, like, when you're at that recording, you're like, it's like being at a fucking, this is what it must have been like to be at a Velvet Underground gig in the late 60s, you know, like. Although, although and I loved them, and I was there, and I was sat on a step behind the stage, and it was an amazing experience yeah. to be involved in that. However, I do think, Cold Lasagna, Hate Yourself, 1999. 1989? 1999. 90, the, the newest one. Yeah, yeah. I think, that, I think that's a better show. I think that's the yeah. best show he's ever done. I think, yeah, yeah. I think that particular show is pretty much perfection for me because, yeah. uh, because I like stand-up where you can see the person as well yeah sure the jokes and, and it, I mean it's it, it's an, it's an extraordinary it's an extraordinary show and um his productivity is astounding but it is yeah I mean it, it's it's all incredible like the visual grammar of cold lasagna is incredible there's actually another one that's coming out I think he's going to re release it soon but there's another hour of stand-up from that tour because it went the tour spanned a number of years and it sort of effectively became you know he kind of did it over a period including the work in progresses of three years and it basically is sort of three hours of stand-up and 
So the he's released the main body of it. Oh, that's good. But yeah, I mean, the nicest thing I could say about it is one of the things that I would say about it is uh, after it came out, Kamal Nanjani tweeted something like, "I if I was 15 or 16 years old and interested in stand-up, this is exactly the sort of thing that would make me want to be a comedian. Mm. Like, it, it's it, there's something about that. But as I say, I fundamentally don't respect him uh, <laughs> as or Daniel Kitson as people. Um, Do you know what? I like their personalities. I don't like their bodies. That's it. <laughs> I don't like them personally. Uh, and, um, and so it's very difficult for me to say anything um, complimentary about them. But if that were not the case, I would say the, the ACAS specials and, and anything you could seek out of Kitson's, since the albums are all are all fantastic. And there's also really good footage of him doing the Melbourne Galas, which are kind of some of the only video of him doing stand-up. So those are, those are pretty incredible. For the last couple of minutes, I want us to, to take that corner into the darkness and go, holy shit, let's give people people. Oh, and Ricky's now rubbing his hands because he wants yeah. new people. He wants things that he has, yeah. has never seen No before. more dinosaurs. So I, I'm just going to start really easily with something that it's, it's I think, impossible to get hold of. But he did some stuff with Reg... Uh, uh, Go Faster Stripe is some of Will Hodgson's yeah. which I think is so brilliant and shows you what you can learn um, on the West Country scene and in weird little clubs yeah. when no one expects you to and his show that won the Newcomer in 2004 was amazing but this is this is why I've got the librarian because that's where my knowledge of esoteric stand-up start, <laughs> stops because I spend so much time doing TV warm-ups so well, I, w- I would say, like, for me right now, uh, th- I think Roy Wood Jr. is doing some of the most interesting and exciting stand-up that's available. And he has uh, a couple of albums out um, that are actually also available on video. They're Comedy Central specials. And I don't quite know how we access them in the UK. Um, I I don't I don't know. I'm sure I don't know. Let me rephrase this. I don't know legally how you access it. <laughs> listen, I'm 90% sure there are various illegal ways of accessing this, uh, of accessing these things. But the legal way to get them uh, currently is um, by um, uh, listening to the albums. And the albums ha- the albums are available on um, on Spotify and Apple Music. Um, and there's No One Loves You uh, and father figure and they're they're just it's just phenomenal political stand-up comedy and he's just a brilliant joke writer and i i really do think he's like i, I really do think some of the stuff that he has on no one loves you about the political situation about race and racism in america is absolutely extraordinary but to be honest with you the last track on father figure is a routine about the film titanic <laughs> and i saw that routine in 2016 when i was at the montreal comedy festival and it uh it's one of the funniest things i've ever seen oh i've not it's heard one of the that. funniest oh, really? things i've borne witness to my entire life is a routine about titanic that is I, I that i wouldn't even know I wouldn't even know where to start with explaining to you what it was about, but it is just jaw-droppingly funny. It, and there is, yeah, there's a there's a string of phrases from that. Yeah, there's a string of phrases that I would say from that 
that will never leave your mind. Pipe game, particularly, <laughs> is one that I will I would say will never ever leave your mind. And then the other one that I would say, and again, it's it's been my great fortune to travel to Montreal and see these shows. But I saw Maria Bamford do uh, a show that ended up that is on available on Netflix as the Old Baby Special. But I would, and the Old Baby Special I love because it starts with her performing in the mirror. And then it's to performing to her husband and then it's performing to four people sat in a garden and it escalates until she's performing into the theatre. And so it's this brilliant piece of it's like a total stand up special because the comedy is encased within the delivery mechanism as well as it actually being a record of very funny stand up material. But I would also say check out the album 20 percent because without the visual gimmick, which is brilliant and is so fantastic just appreciating the material on that special, which contains details about a nervous breakdown she suffered. It, it's just, it, it's the best stand-up show I, I was, I've been fortunate enough to see live. It, it was the most extraordinary. And it isn't something that I think about in retrospect. I walked out of that and texted my girlfriend and said, I've seen the best stand-up comedy I have ever seen in my wow. entire life. In life. It, it, it's, it's, it was mind blowing. It was mind blowing. And the album is called 20%. And it just, um, and I think she technically is the closest we have to Richard Pryor because she, she has the same thing that he has, which is the uh, seemingly bottomless ability to embody absolutely anyone that she's talking about. So when she's in, in the same technical way that when Pryor is telling a story, he's not saying to you, my father said this to me and then he said that to me he's saying my father and then he suddenly becomes his father there's a routine on one of his albums where he enacts what happens when you're uh, there's a person in a bar who doesn't know how to uh, handle alcohol that then goes spins off into three minutes of him being that drunk person there's the, the wino and the junkie it, which is him setting up the premise. He says, you know, a wino is talking to a junkie and then he becomes the wino and the junkie. And there's no uh, narrative uh, between the routine. He's acting this two person play out. And Maria Bamford is the other person I think I can think of that has the like the same technical skills as Richard Pryor. She's she's telling you about a conversation she has with her mother. She says, I said this and then she will just become her mother and respond. And it's a it's an ability with like voice acting and physical performance that means that you know it's like it's it's pure skill you're watching pure uh, you know stand up talent mm. and you know these are also people who are incredible joke writers so they're like you know they're close to being you know they're like they're, they're total comedians i uh, don't want to be this man because uh because this is so amazing, and I'm fully aware that if I don't jump in, Nish will keep talking about his favourite comedy forever. Because <laughs> this feature, this idea, comes from car journeys that I've done with people. Car journeys I've done with some of the people that you've yeah. talked about. I've done, I've done drives down to Exeter with Acaster, yeah. where the entire two and a half hour journey has been this. <laughs> you know, it's what it's what comedians do. But I have to step in because we cannot keep Nish forever and ever and ever. But Ricky, are there are there subjects we can almost do this like um to finish this up with? Are there things about your act, things that you want to learn, things that you want to develop, and you go, I want to do that thing. I want to learn how to do that thing. Do you have an album or a person that you can possibly 
prescribe me <laughs> for, <laughs> for that. Does that make sense, Ricky? Okay, yeah, two things. One of them is pretty much what Nish just said, which is the becoming other characters, which I've played around with a bit because throughout my entire life, I have a spot-on impression of my mother and Heath Ledger's Joker. Yeah. Those are my two. Great. And um, the second thing is storytelling, which is kind of like intertwined with it. Like when, instead of saying, and then my father said this, it's just telling the story. And I feel like I really struggle with telling a story from beginning to end that's funny. And actually, yeah, off, off the top of my head, the third thing, the third thing is actually something that I've seen you do, Nish, actually. And I've just, just reminded me, I just reminded myself of it, is taking a premise and speaking about it at length. So right before we jumped on for the recording of this, I watched your, um, your drama from Coldplay four or five minutes sure. and like be, yeah. that kind of thing where it's like it's one it's one joke kind of but it's not i can't imagine writing one four or five minutes that's based on one premise or idea so yeah that, those are like the the three things uh, i that's the the that things like that routine are just purely me there's two things one uh Josh Widdicombe is very good at and he talks a lot he's talked about um on when he was interviewed by Stu Goldsmith the comedian's comedian where do you want to get you want to wring every conceivable thing out of a subject I think it's something that he attributes to having got from thinking about the way Jerry Seinfeld writes stand-up um and it, 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 it's so yeah, and it's it's about taking a premise and trying to attack it from every conceivable angle. And I, but I definitely think I take it from um, the. I would watch that Chris Rock rap music routine. Um, for me, that's an example of someone looking at a subject like rap music and taking two premises within it that he loves rap music, but he can't defend rap music. And that's something that a lot of us who like rap music yeah. feel like, you know, it's like, you know, and he and the way that he uses, you know, the way that he sets it up by saying when you, you know, in the 80s, you know, run DMC, Houdini, you could defend it as art. But you I love as much and I love the rappers today, but you can't defend to the window, to the wall, to the sweat <laughs> from my balls. And, it, and it's watching how he spins that out into five minutes because then he ends up doing his own version of modern rap music. It's how he escalates that is is just unbelievable and he it's like he rings every single subject dry and all i am trying to do in something like that routine about the drummer from coldplay is do what chris rock did and take it from every angle so it's like you know if you think it's funny that the drummer from coldplay is uh, uh, this sort of anonymous figure <laughs> what, why is that funny yeah. what is that what's the next bit from it and you always you never want to feel like there was still meat on the bone after you finished with it. You know, like my, the, uh, you, you, you try and approach a subject matter the way my uncle used to approach uh, uh, like meat on a bone. You know, like it's, you eat the meat, you make sure you've eaten the tendons, then you fucking drink the marrow out of it. Like, it's like that. The way and then you make a I, soup. Yeah, exactly. Then you make a stock out of it. You know, the way that like, you know, when we, people talk about how we should eat less meat and part of the reason we eat so much meat is because we don't value the meat that we eat. And we're like, oh, I, I'm not that bit looks weird. Mm. Uh, but obviously when, you know, like 
when my family was growing up in India, like they didn't eat meat as frequently. So when you ate meat, you fucking ate, meat. <laughs> you ate the whole damn thing. And it's that approach you'd have to take to a subject matter. So you you have to try and view it from every conceivable angle. Um, and so the um, I'm telling you for the last time, the Jerry Seinfeld album is kind of an anthology of those sorts of routines. Um, but yeah, the Chris Rock rap music routine for me would be a great example of like how he, and then when he goes on to the government hates rap, it's every single permutation of what that could conceivably involve. And it's just- The other one that I would throw in, Ricky, just because I think he's a really interesting one that, especially in the UK, no, especially in the white UK, we don't appreciate the success of Russell Peters, who- Yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who I think is really important because one of the things that this- uh, this podcast came out of was uh, me trying to understand why there aren't more black and Asian comics in the Bristol area, especially Bristolians. And the thing is, for a lot of, especially Asian families living in the, the you know, the, the Asian community in Bristol in Eastern where Nish wants to tell me, oh, that's where you hide your brown people. <laughs> like Russell Peters would do a gig there and be the most famous person in that area that day because he's an absolute superstar internationally. But I don't think we talk about him enough in the UK. It's kind of weird. It's the first time, like, I guess now we like, we have a vocabulary for these things because people talk about um, Asian Twitter and black Mm. Twitter. But the first time I was ever aware that there was any like racial segregation going on was when, uh, somebody said a white friend of mine said oh my god how who's russell peters and how was he doing the o2 and i was like oh <laughs> there's some different cultural conversations <laughs> happen. ah right 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 okay but the other two things that i would say so i would say the other two things you asked me about was uh embodying characters and i would say you can't go wrong with live and concert prior and the routines about um his children particularly the particularly the story about his kid breaking a lamp yeah. uh, because the uh, the back and forth between the child when he just becomes a child is absolutely incredible and that was like that even before i was even born <laughs> like that stuff is absolutely incredible i was it's there's a bit where he's like i was running i wasn't really running because you know how you told me not to run like it's all of that it's unbelievable I can't believe I, I even tried to do it. I can't, I can't do any accents other than my own. <laughs> and then I would say, I would say the Maria Bamford, the 20% album is another one where I'd just be like, I mean, to be honest, you could do it with any of her albums, but I, I picked 20% as my first personal favorite. And then the storytelling one, I would say there's, there's no better example of how to tell a story as a stand-up comedian than the last 10 minutes of the comeback hit, the John Mulaney special. If you wanted one routine, I would say just the story about how John Mulaney met Bill Clinton. I because don't know that. It's the, it's the last five minutes of the comeback hit. And it's one of those things where if you, like, I think the, there's a temptation sometimes to think, well, just nothing funny has ever happened to, uh, certainly something I've thought in my career, it was like, nothing funny ever seems to fucking <laughs> happen to me. But when you boil down the John Mulaney story, it is funny. But I mean, it boils down to the fact that his parents went to university with Bill Clinton and at a fundraiser, he was introduced to Bill Clinton. 
and that's really it. There's a kick in the tail that I wouldn't tell you if you haven't seen it because I won't spoil the routine. There's a kick in the tail that you're like, that's a specific detail that lifts this into something mm-hmm. else. And it is the, you know, the, it just is. But the bulk of that story is this. My parents went to university with Bill Clinton. I briefly met him once and we had a minor, we had a, we, we exchanged small talk when I was 10 years old. That's the story. But then watch it being told and you understand what, like, you know, what, what you can, like, what comedic storytelling requires. And it is just continuous jokes. You know, it's just continuous continuous jokes that's my um, listening tonight this is uh, ricky this works doesn't it this <laughs> works as a little thing it does the problem is it's you know it's we love it it's bottomless and yeah. you, we do yeah we do absolutely we do we do absolutely love it i once a caster and i had to were staying somewhere and we ended up sharing a room and we probably spent two hours talking about this one bit in a Richard Pryor routine about something about a guy being drunk where he says um, where he's acting out this guy being drunk and coming home. And there's a bit in it where he says, um, I know my breath stinks. It's nothing but it ain't nothing but some vomit. <laughs> and he it ain't nothing but some vomit. We probably talked about that for two hours <laughs> and like why it was funny. What's funny about it? Why? What? What? Why the the specific choice of words is funny, you know? Like it's yeah, it's it's a bottomless conversation. Uh, so what we're going to do? We're going to uh, start a Patreon, and we're just going to keep Nish's camera on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're just going to let him <laughs> because it is because he's totally right. Like, uh, and if you think about, and what, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing this to make you talk about them. But if you think about the fact that we haven't discussed Jeremy Hardy, John Oliver, yeah. mm. Andy Zaltzman, yeah. Chris Addison, yeah. Sarah Pascoe, uh, we haven't discussed uh, all of those people that we think are amazing, like, yeah. and all of those shows that we've seen in Edinburgh, and and we've not discussed the circuit comedians like your yeah. Mike Wilmot. We've not discussed the Concord. We've not even gone near musical yeah. comedy, like, and so, so this is like, like you're right. It is a bottomless pit. It's absolutely. Yeah. Um, insane and hopefully people listening to this and hopefully for you ricky who i noticed taking notes for this episode what we're going to have to do on social media is put down an actual written appendix of everything that uh that that we have talked about because i think when i started doing stand-up if i was able to hear this conversation and i had done a few gigs this would be the rest of my week. Like I would, no. I, I would listen to this and go, "Oh, holy shit!" Well, no one is seeing me for for a week. Yeah, I'm getting mad. all of these. It's absolutely mad. Nish, thank you so much for doing it. Thank you, Ricky. Did you find that useful? Oh my gosh, that was so useful. I was just listening, like, "Oh, this is like a personal podcast for me." I listen. I can I can talk about this stuff forever. We'll get you back. We'll get you back as uh, as the librarian, and we'll give you uh, and we'll make sure that you're not allowed to talk about the things that you've talked about. <laughs> we didn't talk Chappelle. Yeah, we didn't even talk. No, about we Chappelle. didn't. No, we mentioned yeah. Chappelle. We didn't talk about the fact. Do you know that Chappelle did a meat raffle in Bristol about two years ago? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you know this, Ricky? No. 
there's a uh, there's a pub in uh, St Paul's called the Star and Garter, and they were reopening it. It must be about eighteen months ago. It wasn't last summer, maybe the summer. Yeah, before. it wasn't. It was not long ago at all. And uh, yeah, Chappelle is friends with someone who was running the event, and he came down, and he didn't even do any stand up. He just hosted it and did the raffle. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. um, Nish, thank you very much for uh, for joining us. My uh, pleasure. Thank you for your time, and, uh, and we will both speak to you very soon. Thanks so much, Nish. Take care. Uh, that was Oh Captain, My Captain. Thank you very much for uh, listening. I hope you found it useful. Um, I think you all know uh, what I'm going to say now, but uh, one of the things when you do podcasts is that uh, basically it, it, we want more people to listen to it because we think it's quite useful. Uh, Ricky, people can listen to it. I'm, I know they can listen to it on Spotify, and I listen to it myself to hear my own voice on Pocket Cast. Where else can people listen in? Well, you can listen in at Apple Podcasts. You can listen in at Breaker. Pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts, really. You can also listen to it at Google Podcasts, which I did not know existed until I started doing this. But just type in podcasts and wherever you get your podcasts, it'll be there. And to help us um, on all of those sites, there are ways to subscribe and to review and say nice things, correct? Yeah, or unnice things. I mean, <laughs> any attention is good attention on the internet. But yeah, best place to leave us a review is on Apple Podcasts. Just go to our page, scroll to the bottom and leave us a star rating. Tell us what you think. Tell us if you have anything you think we need to improve on. And follow us on Twitter at OCatMyCatPod and subscribe to us on Spotify. Basically, follow us everywhere, except in person, because that wouldn't be good. I mean, unless you're a massive fan. And uh, sending questions, if you've got oh, questions, Captain, topics that you Captain. want us to talk about. Uh, re, uh, sort of refer us and recommend us to your friends. And I think that is the end of this bit of the podcast, correct? Yes, it is. It really, really is.